let me tell you why you should care about the plagues, okay? Raise your hand, raise your hand if you're watching online, raise them, get, get your blood going if you're online, raise your hand if, if you like to be humiliated. Crickets, <laughs> okay. Now raise your hand if you have been humiliated, if you felt humiliation, okay. Then this, this text is for you. What, what is that feeling that you have when you're humiliated? What is it? It's smallness, right? You feel so small. You feel worthless. You feel exposed. We don't like to be humiliated because we don't like to feel that way. The story of the plagues is about God humiliating the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh himself. Now, you say, well, that doesn't seem very nice. I don't like people who, who humiliate other people. Now, that, that is generally true if you're humiliating for the power. Well, God already has the power. He's humiliating for some other reason. Let me give you an illustration. Why is humiliation not a bad characteristic of God in the story? Because we're going to see what he's doing. Imagine you've got a friend, and this friend's spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, um, you find out that the person that they are completely devoted to, completely in love with, they're all in. You find out that their significant other is a fraud, a scoundrel, a cheat, and is cheating on them. Here, here, here's what you should not do. Stay silent. But even if you speak up, and you expose the sin, there's a very good chance that your friend will, because they are so devoted, because they know nothing else, because they have given so much, they will tend to not hear you and not wake up to the truth. They will do everything they can to justify not confronting their loved one. So, you might decide because you know that this person that they're so devoted to is actually destroying them, abusing them, oppressing them, treating them as subhuman, you might decide, I've got to do something to wake up my friend. And probably what that thing is, is you need to humiliate their significant other. And guess what's going to happen probably if you humiliate their significant other? Like, do something to catch their significant other in the act, exposing who they are. Guess what? It's going to be extremely painful and humiliating for your friend as well. That's just the truth. But that act of humiliation might be the only thing that wakes them up to the fact that the thing that they've devoted themselves to, loved to, trusted in, hoped in, is actually fraudulent and won't lead to life but only death. 
that humiliation is actually love on your part. That's what God's doing here. God is going to show the Egyptian people and everyone living in Egypt, including the Hebrew slaves, including Pharaoh himself, that what they've devoted themselves to is not worthy of that devotion. That there's something better for them and he's going to say, I'm the true God. It's not easy, okay? It's not simple. The Bible is not some simple story. Sometimes it takes humiliation to bring us to where we need to be to move towards life and not remain in death. Don't need those right now. Okay. So, in this past year, okay, in this past year, this has been a hard year. We've had a plague of our own. And all of us probably have lived some part of our life in an unflattering way. That'd be my guess if you're anything like me. Which is to say, if someone looked back on the last year of our life, say 3,200 years from now, like we're doing in the, in the book of Exodus, and they looked back in our life, and they're looking at the things that we've devoted ourselves to, turned to, trusted in, hoped in, in the midst of this plague, they see the scenes of our lives played out, we might experience some humiliation, wouldn't we? We might feel exposed. We might be shown to be fraudulent. And here's what I want to say to you. That's okay. When you think about that, if somebody just had a a glimpse into your life, just like we get a glimpse into, into the actions of Pharaoh, when Moses and Aaron come to him and say, let my people go, or, or else this is what God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will do. And again and again and again, he's stubborn and he hardens his heart and he doesn't do it. It's embarrassing, it's humiliating that he can't get out of his own way. But, but guess what? We're Pharaoh. We, we do the same thing. If someone saw us again and again refusing to turn from death to life, it would be humiliating. And that's okay. If we allow that humiliation to turn into surrender to God. So there's two kinds, this is a big preaching idea for today. There's two kinds of people in the world. At the end of the day, at the end of the age, at the end of the world, at the end of all time, there's there's really only two kinds of people. The first is those who will be humiliated. And the second is those who choose to humble themselves. That's it. That's what I'm be talking about today. So let's consider together. We're in Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, that's going to be the big 7. And we're going to actually start in verse 13, which is right where Ryan left off last week. Um, and where we left off last week is Moses and his brother Aaron have come before Pharaoh. That's the king of Egypt. Egypt was the greatest empire and power in the world. Pharaoh saw himself as a god. People saw him as a god more than just a man. And so Pharaoh is, he's full of himself in a way that you couldn't even conceive of. And Aaron and Moses have come to him and said, hey, God, the God of our people, the God that you've enslaved, has sent us to create bondage, or sorry, freedom from bondage. 
Pharaoh, it's not going to go well for you. Just trust us that this God, our God, is powerful. Let us go. And Pharaoh, it says, hardens his heart. So verse 13 says this. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Okay. So, what's going to happen next is that we are going to see God go to battle against other gods. And what Ryan said last week, remember if you were with us last week, um, Moses has a staff, and, and when he throws it on the ground, God can turn it into a, a snake and then back into a staff. And Mo- Moses can put his hand into his cloak, and, it, and he, when he pulls it out, his skin turns leprous. means he has a skin disease. We'll see that's one of the plagues. And he can put it back in, and it's healed. Okay, so God has given Moses, and Moses already revealed these signs to Pharaoh to say, hey, I'm not messing around here. But Pharaoh's magician sorcerers use their magical arts to mimic or recreate these signs. So it gives Pharaoh enough of saying, well, I don't need to worry. I've got some guys who also have some power. And so what you see and what's important to remember is that it's not like God is the only spiritual power in the world. These other gods, there's maybe over 2,000 of them in Egypt, they have real power. There's real spiritual power. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not, um, it's, it's not all smoke and mirrors. There's real spiritual power in the world, and God is just more powerful, as Ryan's sermon last week. And so God knows that there's reasons why people worship these gods, and often these gods are tied to natural phenomenon. We'll see that again and again. And so God is going to show that he's the God that has ultimate control over his creation, over and above these other gods, who might, I'm going to say this again, they have real power, okay? It's not completely, um, they're not completely void of power. So let me, let me, let me show you something, okay? So I'm going to, I'm going to read to you four verses that explain the why God decides to go to battle with these gods, okay? So starting in Exodus 9, 15 to 16, I think we have this up on the screen if you're watching online It'll probably even look crisper for you. So here we go. Uh, Exodus 9, so we're about to get there. We're in Exodus 7. Exodus 9 says this. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's saying, listen, this isn't about me winning a battle. I I could smite you and kill you in a second if I wanted. I'm about something else. There's some other reason that I'm doing this besides just wiping you out. He says this. But for this purpose I have raised you up. He's speaking to Pharaoh. To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, including Seattle, Washington, 3,200 years later. God's saying, listen, there's something about the way I'm going to do this. It's not just about winning this particular battle. It's about revealing something about who I am. So Exodus 10 says this. So this is happening all through the plagues. We're not going to read Word for word, all of the plagues. We just don't have time for it. Exodus 10 says this again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing 
that you may tell these in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So again, he's saying, I'm doing this and I'm even going to prolong this so that there's no question when you tell your grandsons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons about who is truly the Lord. Exodus 12 says it again. For I passed through the land of Egypt that night. This is after the last plague. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now, hold on, you're like, hold on, you've got to explain that. We'll get to the 10th plague next week. We've given a whole week to the 10th plague because it's, it's unique and it's important for a number of reasons. So we're doing the first nine, so that, but it's after the 10. I've struck down the firstborn of both man and beast, of, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Okay, so he's saying, I'm going to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. What? To humiliate them, to reveal them for what they are, which is underneath him. And then in Numbers, so we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the book of five, so it's the fourth book. The book of Numbers then recounts these plagues. And it says this, while the Egyptians were bearing their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. Actually, I think I have it written, I have a different translation up here. The Lord has defeated the gods of Egypt that night with great acts of judgment. So recounting years later what happened, it's still seen as God, Yahweh, I am who I am. Go back and listen to that sermon. Yahweh, the name of God, I am who I am, is showing he is who he is, and, and nothing, and no one, and no God, no spiritual power, no Pharaoh has power over him. He, in fact, has power over them. So God, in the plagues, is doing a number of things, one of which is to reveal himself to be over and above all other powers in the world. So let me just give you an example. And we could go through each plague, and people have mapped out which, maybe which God's these plagues are related to each of them. Uh, like, for instance, when the Nile turns to blood, which we'll read in a second, is the first plague. Uh, there was several gods related to the Nile River. It was a source of life. It was a source of happiness. There's actually one of the gods is Happy HPI, which is sort of interesting um, because the Nile brought life and flourishing. And so God is a god in control of the Nile. But let me talk to you about the ninth plague, which is the plague of darkness, where for three days... It's completely dark. I, I believe it's fair to see this particular plague, at least in part, as a challenge to the power of the sun god in Egypt, Re, R-E. It has several names, also um, uh, Ammon. And the myth of the sun god, and, and again, people believe this to be true, was that Re, each and every night, would dive into the celestial sea. Right? So these are ancient people. They see the sun go down into the sea so that Ray, the sun god, would dive into the celestial sea and descend into the netherworld and do battle with the serpent of chaos, um, Apophis, and only uh, after victory would he arise anew the next morning. So this happens day after day after day. And then in the ninth plague, for three days, Ray 
never brings up the sun. So you've got to put yourself in the mind of people who worship this God, who truly believe this God was behind the sun rising, and for three days the sun does not rise. What would they have thought? They would have thought the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, has killed Ray. God's just showing. No, actually, I'm in control. Now you say, ah, I'm a modern person. I don't believe that there's that Ray is a true God, and so what does this have to do with me? You have some God that you trust in, that you think if you just work hard enough, this will happen. If you're just a good person, you should get good things. If you just have enough money, you can be in control. So we've got our gods. We might not give them names, per se, and we not, might not create idols to them, but maybe we do. In fact, we do. I don't have time to map that all out, but you have something in your life that you worship that if it goes away, or maybe it's gone away in the last year, you feel out of control and you begin to believe that I, that I trust in the wrong thing. And that's actually a good thing when you realize that. So God is doing at least this first thing, which is humiliating these revered gods of Egypt and their revered king, the Pharaoh. Okay, now let me tie that to a very important phrase that that is repeated at the beginning of each plague. I'm showing you the pattern here, and then we're going to just read one plague, and then we're going to look at little um, variants in the different plagues to show the progression here. We're not going to read them all, so if you're getting worried of like, oh my gosh, this is going to be forever, don't worry, we've got to be out of here by 11 for the, uh, the Vietnamese church <laughs> is going to be meeting. So there's a hard stop time, which is beautiful, and God's people said, amen. And so let me, let me tie this. There's a phrase at the beginning of every plague that happens. God says, go to Pharaoh. He says, Moses and Aaron, go to Pharaoh and say this to him. Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, if that's in the ESV, but that word for serve can also be translated worship. The Hebrew word there can be serve or worship. So actually, serving and worship are kind of the same thing. Now, this is why it's so important to understand this refrain, because it's repeated again and again and again. God is not just saying, let my people go. That's freedom from. He's saying, let my people go, that they may serve me. Because who have they been serving? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, and God's saying, no, no, no. These are my servants, not yours. So God isn't just feeling charitable and wanting to to free oppressed people. He's wanting to buy people back into his household to be servants in his household. He's going to redeem his people. In this book, we see the word redeem for the first time, which means to purchase back. So I'm going to redeem a gift card. Okay, I'm going to redeem the thing that I want. God wants us not just to be free, but to serve and worship him. So this theme runs throughout the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, we see the writers of the New Testament saying the exact same thing. 1 Corinthians 7, I think we've got that up here on the screen. Let's see if we can get that. There it is. It says this, For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. 
Likewise, he who is called as a free man is, the, is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. And you could say people or things or money or sex or wh- whatever it is. Don't become slaves of something other than your God. This is, this is severe language. Let me read another one. Romans 6 16 says this, Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. You see this? It's not just you were once a slave and now you're free. It's you were once a slave to sin and and disobedience and now you're a slave to God and to righteousness. You say, oh, I don't don't like that. I'm an American. (laughs) It's all about individualism. And getting to do whatever I want. And God says, that's not freedom. Then you're just a slave to your feelings or your desires, the flesh, whatever you feel like. Instead, be a slave to me. And I will lead you to eternal life. So God does not just want to get us out of a bad job. He wants to get us into a great job, which is working for him. That's the story of the Bible. And that's so important when you're reading this and you're seeing this confrontation of, of, of Yahweh versus all these other gods and versus Pharaoh. God's saying, come work for me. Come be my servant. Come serve me, which is your worship. Give your whole life to it. And I will give you what you were truly designed for. Okay, so with <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of setup there, Let's read the first plague, word for word, and then we'll look at the others uh, very, uh, in part, okay? So, so Pharaoh's heart is hardened, even though Moses has showed that he has real power. And verse 14 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, just in the last paragraph. And you shall say to him, the Lord, and remember we've said every time you see L-O-R-D in your Bible, capital letters, that's actually in the Hebrew, Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. So Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed, important word, Pharaoh's obedience. You have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Now he's saying, uh, by this you shall know that I am Dave. <laughs> no, that's not. He's, remember, his name Yahweh is I am who I am. I cause to be what I cause to be, meaning I am the first cause, the greatest cause. No one is before me or after me or more powerful than me. I am who I am, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. 
The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch it out, your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, the ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So even if you got water stored up in a big tub, that's going to turn to blood. One of the reasons why I don't think you can just explain away all the plagues as natural phenomena, though people have tried to do that, to show how they're connected and, and how the Nile flooded, and maybe this was just a really bad flood, or maybe even God created a really bad flood and all these things were natural. I think Moses is trying to say, no, there was something very supernatural because even the water that was out of the Nile turned to blood. Verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up his staff, struck the water of the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. Can't get, see, you can get, you can, I'm not going to look, but you can't get away from smell. The smell of God's ultimate power was everywhere. It stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same. Remember, they did the same. We read about that last week. By their secret arts. So, now, everything's already <laughs> blood, okay? So what did they do? It seems that they were able to, by some secret arts or power, show Pharaoh, oh, oh, we can do that too. Watch, we'll change this little bit of clean water maybe that they found or something. We'll change it in to blood. Enough to get Pharaoh to say, ah, I don't need to bow before this Yahweh. So what did Pharaoh do? So Pharaoh, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is so true, right? We can see God clearly acting. If someone just gives us a little bit of a, of a counterfactual, a little bit of an explanation for what we are experiencing or seeing, oh, we're very quick to believe it, because we don't want to humble ourselves before God. So Pharaoh does that. He turns, he goes into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all of the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, and they could not find good, clean water from the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So for seven days, it was hard to find drinking water. And the whole land would have seen now what, what Pharaoh got to see in privacy that Ryan talked about last week, now the whole nation gets to see the power of Yahweh. Okay, so we see the request. We already talked about that. Let my people go that they may serve me. We see Pharaoh's response, no, and then we see the other uh, refrain that happens again and again in the plagues is Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Now, what is the heart? The heart for uh, in the Hebrew language, or at this time, would have been the center of everything. It would have been the will, the intellect. Um, uh, it would have been uh, our center of feeling and being. Okay, So it is really saying the core of who Pharaoh was was hardened. Was hardened. And there's some troubling verses in here because it's, it'll say a number of things. It says his heart was hardened, it remained hard, is hardened, it's going to say Pharaoh himself hardens his heart, and it's also going to say that Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart. All of these things. And so how do we explain that? How can we hold Pharaoh responsible if God is 
hardening his heart. Well, it's important to understand that there's multiple ways in which Pharaoh's heart is hard, and God is one of them. But Pharaoh is very much still responsible. He's not a pawn. He's not a puppet. He has his full agency still to choose to harden his own heart, even though God is going to come on top of that hardening and, and sort of uh, zap it and, and make it even harder. So there's a scholar named um, So Sarna who writes a book uh, about Exodus. He, he says this, In brief, the idea of God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that he, God, utilizes a man's natural proclivity towards evil, and he, God, accentuates the process in the furtherance of his own historical purposes. So, when we think of, uh, you might be like, this doesn't bother me. Trust me, people have spent (laughs) millions of pages talking about Pharaoh's heart, and who hardened it, and what has hardened it. So, for those of you who struggle with, how can God harden and Still hold Pharaoh accountable? Here you go. Both are happening. Pharaoh's own proclivity to not humble himself but to elevate himself, God is then using that and accentuating that to further God's historical purposes, what we just read about, which is to reveal to that nation, all the people, that he is the true God, and for generation after generation, all the way to Seattle, Washington, 3,200 years later, that he is the true God worthy of worship. So God is using Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is very much choosing his own fate right here, okay? So this is the rhythm that you'll see with all nine, the first nine plagues, okay? The same thing. So then I want to just now point out some unique elements of each of the other plagues as we watch an increasing um, severity to the plagues and what happens to Pharaoh's heart along the way. Because remember, we are Pharaoh. So in plague number two, what happens is there is an outbreak of frogs in the land. Again, God says, tell them, let my people go, or else there'll be frogs. Pharaoh says, no, there's frogs, and Pharaoh hardens his heart again. Now, there's some unique things. Again, in this second plague, the magicians are able to mimic or replicate, at least partially, this plague. So again, Pharaoh's got some counter-evidence. Well, maybe this God's not so different than my gods or or my sorcerers. Um, But look what happens. Pharaoh, at least in part, is beginning to see that this God has power even over his sorcerers. Look at verse 8. This is in chapter 8, if you're tracking in your Bible. It says this. Plead with the Lord. Pharaoh says this to Moses Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. Okay? So Pharaoh sees. Clearly, whatever the magicians could do is not quite enough to get all the frogs to leave. And so he says, okay, okay, I'll let you go. Now, for the first time, Look what happens, verse 13. And the Lord, Yahweh, did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out in the houses and in the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. So all the frogs then died. But look at this, verse thing. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So he goes back. He breaks his word. Pharaoh breaks his word. This is important. Because God never breaks his. Everything God says that he will do, he does. Pharaoh, on the other hand, is a liar. So he breaks his word. 
He does not let the people go. So God says, go back to Pharaoh again, and this time tell him a third plague, gnats, or some have speculated maybe lice, even worse. And this is a great plague because Aaron takes his staff, and and God says, I want you to slam it on the ground, again, dusty ground. And and when you slam it on the ground, the dust that comes up, gnats will fill the land of Egypt. Pretty awesome. Now, gnats fill the land. As we'll see, Pharaoh will still, his heart will harden. He won't give up. But what's interesting in this plague that's unique is the magicians, for the first time, are unable to replicate this. Because who can do that? (laughs) Who can hit the ground and the dust turns into gnats? They couldn't do it. So this is what the magicians say. This is in chapter 8, verse 18. They say this. The magicians tried by their secret art to produce gnats, but they could not. So so there were gnats on man and on beast. Very inconvenient. And then it says this, verse 19. So then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So interesting. The magicians are like, we're out. (laughs) Okay, we're done. We 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 can't play this game anymore. And they try to convince Pharaoh. This is God. And even they have this notion of there must be some other God, big capital G, and that's different than our gods. We can't replicate it. And still, Pharaoh, his heart was hardened. So now even Pharaoh's wisest counselors are telling him, like, this ain't normal. This is different. We, we should give in. We should humble ourselves. And Pharaoh says no. So then we get to plague number four. This is the plague of the flies. And, and the first, for the first time in the plagues, what we see in the plague of flies, and if you, you can see this in verse 22, um, same pattern happens. It says, verse 22, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. So there was a region of Egypt where many of the slave families lived. Most of the slave families, in fact, lived. And God's saying, um, in those places, they won't experience the plagues anymore. And, and we'll see that through the rest of the plagues, that God is now making a distinction between the people living in Egypt who are Hebrews, people who are worshiping him, and those who are not. So he says, I'm going to make a distinction. He says, verse 23, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. This is important. Um, and, and we'll see this again in the fifth plague and then throughout the rest of the plagues. Because God is, is showing that uh, he even has control over the boundaries of a plague. He's not just starting something and then whatever happens, happens. He can control even the boundaries. Because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he's saying there are unique benefits to worshiping and following me, including no flies in your salad. So let's get to to plague number five. Here's a plague where now the Egyptian livestock get sick. And again, the Lord makes a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. And what's really funny here is, is Pharaoh says, that can't be. So he sends somebody to go check to see if any of the Israel livestock have been infected by this disease. And sure enough, the Bible says, but not one, this is verse 6, of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Not one. 
See, Yahweh is a God of life and death. And I can't help when I read this to think about what Jesus then, who claimed to be Yahweh in the flesh, says when he predicts at the end of the age, I will separate the sheep from the goats. You remember when Jesus says that? God knows his people by name. And he doesn't make mistakes. He knows exactly whose are his and who continues to refuse his invitation. The thing about sheep and goats is they're very hard to, to differentiate. <laughs> That's Jesus' point. But I know, Jesus says, and there will even be some who say that they're one of mine, but I know that they're not. So God knows, and he showed it back here in the ninth plague. He knows exactly which livestock are the people who worship him and those who don't. So let's get to plague number six, which is the plague of boils. So now we see a shift. See, we have this increasing intensity of the plagues. What first started as kind of inconvenience and nuance and discomfort... Now, and then it moves to actual cattle, which are really, really important. They start to die. Now you start to see that human beings are being directly affected. Why is this important? Well, now we start to see, when it starts to affect us, now we start to see where the rubber meets the road. Um. One of the ways, I actually get this from my wife, who's a nurse, and we were talking about the plagues, and, and I said, what, what do they remind you of? And, and she brought up uh, defibrillation, right? When somebody has a heart attack or their heart is not working properly, and you get out the paddles, and you're like, clear! You always want to do that, right? Uh, that's really fun, by the way. Just try that. If you're feeling antsy, just do that real quick right now. Okay. Um, Defibrillation. So the plagues act like a defibrillator because, you see, Moses has this hardened heart. It's not working properly. He's not seeing God correctly for who he is. He's worshiping himself and these other gods rather than Yahweh. And so each plague that happens is like a defibrillator shock, right? And you've watched enough TV to know it's like, it's not working. Turn it up, right? So each time God's like turning up the juice on the defibrillator. And each time he's trying to give a bigger shock to wake the heart back up, to do what the heart is supposed to do. And so I was talking to my wife about this, and she actually told me what, um, that what they do with defibrillators is actually they do three in a row, so groups of three. And I thought that's really interesting because when you study the plagues, actually scholars will say the first nine plagues are grouped into three. So there's a three, uh, a pattern of three, and then another pattern of three, and another a pattern of three of how and where and, and how Pharaoh responds. So like a defibrillator, there's these three, and then the three don't work, so we've got to do three more. The three don't work, so we've got to do three more. And these defibrillator shocks are getting, they have to get more powerful and more powerful and more powerful because God is trying to wake up Pharaoh's heart. And he's trying to not just wake up Pharaoh's heart, but he's also trying to wake up the hearts of the Hebrews and the hearts of all Egyptians, the non-Hebrew Egyptians. He's trying to wake them up to worship him rather than these other gods. And so I was talking to Allie, and she was telling me the really unique thing about defibrillator. I didn't know this. I sort of thought, well, they're, they're, they're meant to restart the heart. And that's not entirely true. What a defibrillator actually does is it stops the heart so that it can start 
back up on the right rhythm. Because something has happened to your heart, it's off rhythm. And if it stays off rhythm, you'll eventually die. So the defibrillator is meant to stop the heart for a beat so that it can get back on the right rhythm. So that's very interesting. I think that's exactly what the plagues are trying to do. It's trying to stop life as the Egyptians knew it long enough so that they could re-rhythm their life to worship Yahweh rather than the false gods or rather than Pharaoh. So he's got to stop something so that it might start up at the right rhythm again. If your mind's not gone there yet, wake up. What's the last year been? The heart has stopped. Our rhythms have been erased. And you need to ask yourself a very hard question. Will you be like Pharaoh and not let the defibrillator of the last year reset your rhythm back on God? Or are you going to let the rhythms of old come right back in as they were? Or maybe you've even started new rhythms that you're going to let go on even as the world opens back up. Ask yourself that tough question. With the plague that we've been in, will you let God in his mercy and grace stop your heart so that he can start it back up on the right rhythm so that you might center your life around him, that he might become the center of your worship and life, that you might serve him rather than your job when your job starts taking even more of your time again? Will you center your life on him so that your weekends center around God rather than on your enjoyment, pleasure, and thrill. What are you going to do? Don't let this last year just be something you kept your eyes closed for, hoping it would get, a, a, just you'd get through it and you could go back. Let God use it to reset the rhythms of your life. I say that out of love. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. He said, the last thing I'll do is humble myself before you, God. Don't let that be you. Get your pulse back. Get your life back on track with God at the center. Okay, now we're into plague number seven, the hail. So now what was boils, that's not good, that's not fun, now is actually going to get worse. You say, hail's not that bad. No, this is like giant Texas hail. This is like, if you've ever lived in Texas, I know I've got a couple of Texans in the booth. Uh, Texas hail, that stuff can get big. Like We're talking like bowling ball, probably size hail, because God's going to tell them, if you don't get your animals and people indoors, they will die. So it's now even a more direct plague on the people, all because Pharaoh's hardening his heart. So you say, at this point, why does God do this? Why is he allowing this to happen? Why is he allowing this to happen? Well, listen. Lots of people are experiencing a lot of unpleasantness, even death, death of their cattle, even potentially human death here, because God cares enough about all Egyptian people, not just Pharaoh, not just the Hebrews, but all other Egyptians to wake them up through some very challenging suffering with the hopes that maybe even, and we'll see this will happen, when Israel does get released, many of the Egyptians will go with them to worship Yahweh over every other God. So this is God's mercy. 
And when we struggle with the question of pain and suffering and evil in the world, one of the things we have to do is trust that God is doing something we can't quite understand right now. And it's actually his mercy to wake us up. Wish I had more time to talk about that. The debate will never stop. People will always wonder, why does God allow plagues to come upon innocent people? Well, no one's innocent, God says. No, not one is righteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are deserving of punishment. And so when God brings these temporary sufferings, he's doing it to hopefully wake you up to eternal life. And sometimes we don't understand his ways. We don't understand why it has to be like this. But the book of uh, Revelation shows us that at the end of the age, Jesus will return and we'll have a chance to stand before him. And even then, some people won't like how God's done it and they'll choose to go their own way. Even once he's revealed himself to be true and right and who he said he was, even then people say, well, I didn't like how you did it. I don't like those ten plagues. I don't like the fact that, that God the Son had to die on a cross. I don't like any of that. So I'm going to go my own way. This will never go away. It will always be hard to understand why God allows plague and suffering to occur to all people, even when it's the actions of Pharaoh that lead to it. But God's doing something. Nothing is lost in his kingdom. He will use it all if you let him. Plague number eight is the locusts. These are like grasshoppers. They're giant. They eat everything. And what's interesting about this particular plague is that when uh, it happens, Pharaoh actually confesses. And he says, okay, I'm wrong, God. You're right, I'm wrong. Please take the locusts away. And they take it away. And then um, well, <laughs> he actually calls himself, I'm a sinner. And there's something really fascinating about that because God, uh, Pharaoh is confessing and actually that we'll see at the end of plague nine, he actually obeys, or, or the plague 10, he will obey. But the question is, does he ever truly repent? And this is important for you to understand because there's a difference between just saying I was wrong to get God on your side or to truly acknowledge that you're wrong or even to truly obey and do what he says but to not let your heart turn and walk towards him. That's repentance. Repentance means to turn. It's referring to the heart, the will, the desires. And so Pharaoh does two of the three that you need to do to be saved. He confesses his sin. He confesses that he's wrong. He even obeys God in the end, but yet his heart never turns. He never loves God. We can fall into that trap too. Plague 7 and 8 show that it's not enough just to, to admit that you're wrong or to admit that God is God. You have to let him change your heart so that your heart becomes one of love and desire towards him. So the ninth plague is darkness, and we're going to stop there. The land is dark for three days. People are terrified. Their sun god Ray, like we said, is nowhere to be found. All of this has happened so what do we do? <laughs> we need to humble ourselves. That's what the Bible teaches. And this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. 
in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which was the, for the prophet of God is the most humiliating of deaths. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that on the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So this is what God did. God the Son humbled himself by taking on the form of humanity when he is God. So he becomes fully God and fully man, he is the God-man, but that's such a humbling because he's put the covering of humanity's uh, finiteness over his infiniteness, and, he's, and he does it for us, and he even goes to the cross and dies in our place and bears our sin and punishment and pays to redeem us. He humbles himself, and therefore he's the exact opposite of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, being in, the very na- in his very nature human, though he pretended to be a god, did not consider his fraudulent claims of equality with the gods something to renounce. He used it to his own advantage. And when it was revealed that he is a mere human, he refused to humble himself before the true God. And therefore, many others suffered. And ultimately, God humiliates him. And so 3,200 years later, and for thousands of years, hundreds of years, generation after generation, yes, we think of the pyramids, but we also think of this story where God humiliates Pharaoh. All will be humbled one day. All, the Bible says, will stand before the throne of God and be judged. We will all be brought to bow our knee, not just some, The Bible says all will bow their knee before Jesus and confess that he is Lord. Now some will bow their knee themselves humbly and God will welcome them into his kingdom and household and some will bow their knee fraudulently, begrudgingly, being forced to bend their knee, but all will bend their knee. And so we get to where we started. There's two kinds of people in the world. All will be humiliated. All will be humbled, but will you humble yourself? And if you do, if you choose to learn about the power of God and see your smallness and take your knee and invite God to be your God and worship and serve him, he will take your hand and lift you up and say, you are my son, you are my daughter. Welcome home. And if you refuse, he will be forced to keep you out of his goodness and kingdom because you refuse to willingly acknowledge and humble yourself. That's all the time I've got. (laughs) I have a few applications. I'll bring those next week. 